bitches bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erica, and with us today, we have Christelle Tosono, who is um, an academic extraordinaire in the field of artificial intelligence and tech more broadly, I would say. Um, Christelle has been at Princeton. You have worked in the legislature, the federal legislature. The point is we're going to do, we're going to switch up a little bit and we're going to talk about tech in a very social context and how it affects the most vulnerable people in communities, specifically artificial intelligence, because that is what, that's what everybody is trying to make happen. So Christelle, welcome. Hey, Jerica. It's lovely to be on the podcast. Okay. So, Christelle, let's start with, um, like, what is artificial intelligence? Yeah. So, I would define artificial intelligence as the processing of vast amounts of data in order to make inferences, identify patterns, and make recommendations. Yeah. And um, it's that pattern recognition that is the real part, the pattern recognition and the data input. I would say that those are the two issues, main issues with Mm -hmm. artificial intelligence as it pertains to society, correct? Yes, correct. Okay. So what kind of data is actually put into these systems to do pattern recognition and so on? So it's all types of data, unfortunately. Uh, for the most part, it's like user-generated data from like the uh, devices that we use. So like your computer, it will track you know bank statements, uh, and also like your location data from your phone. Uh, if you have that on, please turn it off. And also like the tracking <laughs> from like your your watch, so like, your smartwatch. So if you're going on runs, it'll track you know where you're running, how long you're running, your heartbeat. Uh, you know all types of data that we generate you know, consciously and unconsciously from the use of, you know, all these technologies. So it's more than just shopping sites, basically. Exactly. Okay. So what is biometric data then? So biometric data refers to the data that is collected from, you know, our bodies. It can range from, you know, our faces, our retinas, our fingerprints, our heartbeats, our sleep patterns, if you're tracking that, all the way to our menstrual cycles. Yeah. I feel so exposed right now, by the way. Yeah. Very exposed. Okay. So tell us about um, how how does facial recognition work into these sort of definitions or broad-based stuff? Yeah. So facial recognition technology refers to uh, computational tools used to identify, recognize, and analyze human faces in images, videos, or in real-time footage. And the goal of these technologies is to first, you know, identify whether there's an, uh, a face in an image or a video, and then whether that image or face, should I say, matches the one on a database, the one that you're trying to, like, you know, identify or not. Yeah. Yeah. So it basically does work like every cop show now. 
that they <laughs> in the sense that they can even do it live, correct? Yes. Okay, in real time. Yeah. Okay. So in other words, all those CCTVs, for example, would be collecting images all the time? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the surveillance around us then. Because right now we're going to call it surveillance um, because this is surveillance can be used as surveillance technology. Now, I do understand that AI can be used for a multitude of positive processes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we're not going to talk about those. Oh, no, no, no. Today, we're going to talk about how this works into the surveillance state apparatus. Yeah, I would say that a lot of police, uh, should I say law enforcement agencies uh, and intelligence uh, agencies will use, uh, you know, AI and more specifically facial recognition technology in order to, you know, be able to identify protesters and, you know, with the goal, yeah, to like identify people who, you know, went against the law, but in general, like to, to track people, unfortunately. And indigenous land defenders in the country, unfortunately, have been, um, you know, uh, facing that type of surveillance, in addition to, you know, Black people and uh, broadly people who, who protest in the country. When you talk about Indigenous land defenders, um, Indigenous people are more likely to um, disrupt commercial enterprise, right? And so um, I remember, as you're talking about it, an operation <clears throat> called Project Sitka, which was launched in early 2014 to identify key individuals, quote, willing and capable of utilizing unlawful tactics, unquote, during Indigenous rights demonstrations. Now, there was an RCMP report that talked about this um, in 2015. And so that means that the RCMP were viewing Indigenous rights activism from a terrorist extremism, extremism umbrella and gathering intelligence on that issue. So, I mean, this is not something that may happen in the future. This is something that's already happened. And so um, what I want to talk about and what I want to really focus on it are the human rights implications of this. So first, let's talk about racial bias and these systems. Mm -hmm. So these systems are not used to be trained in data sets that were not representative of the populations uh, in you know, respective countries. But in general, like what we found is that uh, these technologies don't accurately identify black women, dark skinned black women, uh, members of the LGBTQ community, children, elders, um, I mean, I could go on, but yeah, like a vast majority of the population is not properly identified by those technologies. And a study who is properly identified then white men. Okay, go ahead. But yeah, like you know, I I I would I always go back to this study by Timnit Jebru and Joy Belowomi in the U.S. where they found that like the most uh, popular commercial applications of facial recognition technology were not identifying black, uh, dark-skinned women accurately compared to white people. And 
there's another study by the National uh, Standards Institute in the U.S., which found, again, like, this is not working with people who are aging, with children, with women in general, with L- members of the LGBTQ community, people, like, a lot of people, like a vast majority of the population, it doesn't work. And this is a big problem because what if, like, this is deployed by law enforcement in order to identify someone who allegedly committed a crime? If someone is unfortunately, you know, uh, misidentified, then they have to go through the whole judicial process of, you know, cl- um, you know, proving that they're, you know, innocent, and that is financially, emotionally exhausting and costing. Yeah, expensive. Yeah. So I just want to back up and uh, highlight Timnit Kabru, who is, um, who was. The she's a black woman and was the co-lead of Google's ethical AI team. And the company apparently forced her out. So the conflict was over a paper she co-authored. And um, she was told that the paper didn't meet our bar for publication, unquote. She um, is a widely respected leader in AI ethics research and is known for co-authoring a groundbreaking paper. I think that's the one that you were talking about that showed facial recognition to be less accurate at identifying women and people of color, which means its use can end up discriminating against them. And that is exactly what you're talking about and how that filters into protests are things like your CCTV and what kind of what is CCTV and what other kind of public surveillance do we do we have in wide use? Um, before I answer that question, I just want to say one tiny thing. Mm. The paper uh, Timnit was fired for was on large language models. Okay, the technology behind ChatGPT. But that's another. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, large language models are what's behind Chat. GPT. Yeah. Can you exactly. explain that a little bit? In Yeah. So large language models, in simple terms, analyze large amounts of text in order to act as chatbots. And so when you're, you know, trying to like summarize the text uh, using chat GPT, large language models are the technique, the computational technique used to generate uh, the information. Uh, uh, on on ChatGPT, yeah. Of course, there's more text uh, data probably mm-hmm. than anything else. So mm-hmm. you would need uh, something more powerful too to compute it. I would assume. Yeah, and the paper found that like the the environmental cost of running these tools is extravagant. It's huge. It's really really bad. And then they also found that like in terms of electricity or electricity. So like the data centers needed to power these tools emit a lot of heat. And so in order for the computers not to explode, they need uh, to be cooled down. Yeah. And to be cooled down, it requires more energy. They also found like the, the, the systems tend to be biased and also copyright infringement. So like you're copying information off the internet and you're making money off of it. So mm-hmm. again, you're inflicting on so many points and she got fired because of that paper. Uh, unfortunately. And she was a co-author. Other people wrote that paper. Yeah. Uh-huh. What's the bias in chat GPT? 
So imagine you're building a technology using information online. And information online reflects the biases and systems of oppression in the world. So if there's vast amounts of literature, you know, uh, uh, saying awful things about Black people, about LGBT people, about, you know, uh, you know, Muslims and so on, like, what the 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 chatbot is gonna uh, feed back to you is that a lot of racism, a lot of uh, xenophobia, a lot of homophobia, transphobia, and so on. Yay, we're getting it from all angles, Crystal. <laughs> but thankfully, Beyonce released a new movie, so I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm not. You're like you're like you're like come on, girl. I got Beyonce. Come on. So there are. So there are a wide array of these algorithmic systems as we talked about. Facial recognition is one. Your chat GPT is another one. Um, and these systems are available for sale, provision, or use. Now, as I'm saying, let's go back to the public-facing systems or the public systems that, uh, like a CCTV, uh, which is closed-circuit tele- television, I believe, Let's put it this way. It's everywhere Mm -hmm. in like every major city. I think the most CCTV per like square kilometer or something is in London. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that became really, really uh, used after uh, 2007 and their terrorist bombing that happened Mm -hmm. there. So, Christelle, um, where might CCTV be? They could be in parks next to school, which was the case in when when I when I lived in Montreal. The park next to my house, which had a, a school in it, had a bunch of CCTV cameras pointing to the school. So kids, you know, would be you know in that footage. The CCTV cameras can be in subway stations, in oh, buses. I've seen them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember when I was going to Niagara Falls, like there was a camera in the bus, um, and I didn't like that. Um, and then in you know public public buildings, uh, so like if you're getting you know an identity card done, there will be a CCTV camera. But like surveillance technologies, you know, go beyond the CCTV camera. They've mm-hmm. our phones and then other digital technologies such as our computers and iPads. So if I'm not not if I'm I am on social media, I'm Twitter to like you know get. Uh, Another understanding of what's going on in the world and like police agencies will analyze data generated by people on social media. These, this is a thing that also algorithms are, you know, able to support in. So it's not just the cameras, it's all the activity we're doing online that is under scrutiny, unfortunately. I feel like it's everything that has metadata. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I just used a term that we should probably define metadata the data of the data the way i would define it in simple terms is like all the the crumbs that you make on the digital crumbs online so so like you know you take a picture and it tells you like the dimensions and it tells you where you took it location and it tells you this is my iphone and it tells you um yeah like it'll actually map out where this other person was when that phone when that picture was taken or sorry where you were when that when that picture is taken 
and of course, um, file size, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's metadata. It is those crumbs that you were talking about that uniquely identify the data, which would be the image. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, For example. Okay. So I'm glad we got the language down because my goodness, I know it's confusing for a lot of people. So I'm glad we're like rolling out the, the language carpet so that when people read about AI and stuff, they're not totally like, what's going on? Yeah. 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 And that's the thing that tech does, doesn't it? It, it kind of, they, they kind of make everything so murky so that we won't ask them questions. Yeah. And like, it's, I think it's really bad because I don't have a computer science degree, but I've been able to understand these things because they're not as complicated. Mystifying only helps them make more money and doesn't protect us uh, as a society. So we've done racial bias. Uh, We know that facial recognition technology, which was tested in a study from the UK, uh, performed the worst when recognizing Black faces, especially Black women's faces. Now, this public sort of gathering of information, and when I say public, I mean publicly funded departments, agencies, etc. Because I'm thinking CBSA right now, for example, mm-hmm. right? Um, I'm thinking about protest. I'm thinking about them collecting data. And I'm thinking about them sharing data and then sharing it with the five eyes. Of course, I'm going, it's not even hyperbole. I'm kind of delving into how far this could go. Let's talk about the privacy aspect and how all of this gathering of data affects privacy. Is it legal? So it really depends. Right now, I would say that when your personal identifiable information is, you know, made available through those systems, that's when it gets illegal. But when your name, your address, anything that is personally identifiable is not part of the mix, that's when, like, unfortunately, the Privacy Act doesn't really protect us. And this is the problem of, you know, big data right now. Like, you don't need personal information in order to make dangerous inferences. You can know a lot about someone by the movement that they're doing, so where they're moving, what they're buying, and what type of what are their uh, habits in general? So if I, for example, am you know a Beyonce fan, live in Toronto, there's a lot of things that you can know about me. You can probably uh, uh, identify that I'm a black person, that I'm probably young, uh, that I probably you know consume content online. So it's unfortunately like not only about personal information, personal identifiable information right now. Yeah. Wasn't that the problem, too, with, like, Cambridge Analytica, the Facebook Cambridge Analytica data scandal? You could infer certain things by Facebook data. Like, you could infer race. You could infer um, income. You could infer all sorts of things. And it was uh, the man who ran, or the men who ran Cambridge Analytica, uh, were described as having close ties to the Conservative Party, at royalty, and the British media. So the problem with Cambridge Analytica was that the company, the the consulting company, had used an app uh, on Facebook to collect data from users without their knowledge. So these apps were often disguised as games, 
And so they were able to collect people's names, but also like their location and then gender. You're like Candy Crush? I cannot confirm that. But <laughs> I, like apps on Facebook. You know how yeah. like, you used to be play games on, on the app? So yeah. Um, and so they, so they collected all that data without people knowing. And then they said, let's build a tool to identify the political tendencies of people. Now, this is where I want to bring nuance because there's still a lot of debate in academia whether you can actually identify and then influence people through through their political, you know, um, attitudes. Um, and so they were like, they essentially said, like, we can influence people. We've we have targeted ads that we can send to people, if I remember correctly. So that was a whole scandal. The fact that they collected data without people knowing, without their consent to build a tool that would allegedly be able to support political campaigns in the UK, in North America. And I think uh, Ted Cruz and used it, but um, yeah, I, I don't remember who else used it. That explains why Ted Cruz still has a seat. Algorithmic systems, uh, what you're talking about is collecting that vast amount of personal information and how invasive that could be. And it's not necessarily cleared up by um, the Privacy Commission or the Privacy Act. So is it possible to take the data collected and like rearrange it to re-identify even though it's anonymized? Oh, yeah. It's been done multiple times. What? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I remember um, I was reading about this when I was at Princeton, but... Um, one of the faculty at my center had, you know, been part of a competition through Netflix where they used people's ratings to re-identify them. And that was successful. And then there was another study by Latanya. Um, oh, I forgot her name. She's at Harvard. Amazing black woman. Um, where she used um, data from people who responded to surveys and I think it was like DNA data to re-identify them using other information. I honestly didn't realize that. So one of the problems with this is um, the impacts or risk stemming from the use of this technology is that it could impact people's financial situations, physical and or psychological well-being, right? And I think the risk of this is to socially sort or profile individuals and communities, as well as to forecast and influence their behavior, which is basically what we were talking about with Cambridge Analytica. And that's one of the risks, too. And I would think that you could you could be more specific now because this is back in 2015. They were doing this. Yeah. And to bring more nuance to this, like researchers are still unsure to what extent these systems work. So on the one hand, we're tackling up the issue of like when they work, but also when they don't work, what types of harms emerge when you're falsely or um, pushing certain narratives on, on communities. And uh, if we're going to the charter, so Facial recognition technology, for example, will impact freedom of assembly, uh, freedom of association. There's a chilling effect to knowing that like you're being watched. Every single one of your movements are being watched. And this affects our democratic rights. 
you know, the ability to exert your, you know, right to vote, that, you know, is affected when people feel like they're being tracked. Not feel, but like when people are being tracked by these tools. Yeah. I never I never realized like the implications on civil society were so chilling. Mm-hmm. The ability to, to for these systems to be used to socially sort people. Okay, yeah. What does that mean? So let me put my neoliberal lenses on. <laughs> and if Are those do those lenses need cleaning? Oh, they're dirty, yeah. For sure. Uh, they should be thrown away. Uh, but let's say I'm a government trying to do as many budget cuts in order to show that, like, I know how to do my job. And so I want to lead an austerity set of measures. And so a company approaches the government and tells me, oh, yeah, you know what? Like, we can sort people in a way that to identify who needs medical access and who doesn't, who needs, like... Uh, uh, what types of medications they need if they're having trouble, what types of government services they should do. And this way, we're going to be able to cut on the amount of employees working in government. So these types of, you know, tools that, you know, don't come across as social sorting end up being social sorting and can be used by governments to justify cutting, um, you know, uh, who knows how many hundreds of workers. And so not only that, services services as well oh you don't need to have an office in your community in order to access government we're gonna have you do that through a computer and another caveat that i always want to bring in these systems don't usually work so we're being marketed marketed they're used but it doesn't mean that they work because they don't have the proper accountability mechanisms to be vetted uh and we also don't have the benchmarking yet in in canada and also internationally to assess like how good these systems are like we're still behind you know internationally on assessing how good these systems are so they don't even work they don't even work and if they do it's like a half-assed job like i really want to challenge the assumption that these systems work perfectly because they don't and this is like coming from work by the amazing deb raji who's again a black woman from ottawa uh, currently working. Oh, she's from Ottawa. Yeah, yeah she's from Ottawa. Yeah. Oh wow. Currently doing her PhD in California. Amazing, amazing brain. Oh, it's always black women. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just want to know that algorithmic systems. So what we were talking about can be used in the public sector context to assess a person's ability to receive social services such as welfare or humanitarian aid. Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. can result in discriminatory impacts on the basis of socioeconomic status. We're talking class discrimination, geographic location. You think rural versus urban versus suburban and amongst other data points points analyzed. I just want to say these have these systems have far reaching implications at scale. Mm-hmm. And so um, it is more than just, uh, and this is bad enough, it miss, it misidentifies uh, vulnerable communities. It introduces more people of that vulnerable community into the criminal justice system too, 
or has the potential to do that at scale. And so like its use in the criminal justice system is very scary to me. Now, we have a bill on the docket, C-27. I just want to say to everybody that at the point I'm recording this, this Friday, December 1st, um, I'm slated to testify about this on Tuesday, December 5th. So I'm really glad. This is me doing a lot of prep, okay? Multitasking! I'm telling you, Black women. Anyway, so let's talk about Bill C-27. This legislation kind of, like, I feel like it snuck up behind the public. And so what I found, see, I was waiting for them. I was like, it's coming to Canada. I'll just wait. Next thing you know, I get a tip off of this Bill C-27. And I was like, oh, here we go. You go through it. Part of the first half of it is a lot of Privacy Act stuff, how to update privacy. I'm not going to go through that. It's a whole nother podcast that I'm sure I'll do in the future. Um, But let's talk about the artificial intelligence part, which is ADA, which is the Artificial Intelligence Data Act. And so I've written about it. You've written about it. It's very concerning. So the Minister of Innovation, Science, and Economic Development, I said, Mr. Uh, Philippe Champagne. François Philippe Champagne. Yeah. It's it's Francois. Right. My bad. Um, who they call Frankie Bubbles. Oh my God. Ooh, I never heard that. From a bunch of journalists. They call him Frankie Bubbles. That is so ridiculous. They think it's cute. Anyway, <laughs> so um, basically ADA sets out provisions and regulations that um, that are supposed to sort of oversee artificial intelligence from a private sector perspective. Now, I must say that one of the problems with ADA is that um, I believe security services, law enforcement services, and maybe immigration services, I believe, are exempt from ADA. So keep that in mind that this does not, this basically does not apply to the federal government or if they use your technology, it does not apply to that private sector company that has contracts with these organizations for artificial intelligence. So that is my first sort of, um, there's a lot to scrutinize with this bill. We will go through it sort of like as an overview and and then um, we'll talk about sort of like the state of where we're at with surveillance technology. So I am reading from a document co-authored by Christelle. So anyway, there are a few authors of which you are one. And it is a report that's in collaboration with Toronto Metropolitan University, McGill, and Princeton. Yeah. 
And it's about really uh, providing recommendations, especially in this lens of um, vulnerable communities to improve the bill, I would say. Would that be fair? I would okay. say to improve, yeah, the, the, the framework to uh, legislate AI in the country, yeah. Okay, so not necessarily this bill, but the framework that needs to be adopted, basically. Yeah, and if you build off our criticism from the bill, yeah. Okay, let's start with how, like, cloak and dagger, this was just sailed through, okay? I.e. the lack of public oversight. This bill did not have any public consultations. What it, What are the implications of that? And what kind of consultation did take place in its absence? So what types of consultation took place in its absence? Well, I don't know because we don't even have information on that. But what I, you know, can, you know, uh, at least hypothesize is that they probably consulted with experts in the country coming from industry on how to regulate this. And when you focus only on industry, then you're missing out a wide range of perspectives. People who, you know, have expertise in digital rights advocacy from civil society organizations, you know, have a lot to say because AI is not a technology in isolation from the broader ecosystem of technology in the country. So when you're not consulting people who have decades of experience doing this, then you're missing out on so much, so much, so much. So a public um, a public consultation would then involve community groups. It would involve um, uh, academics. Yeah. It would involve even personal people in the space who are um, advocates for certain principles, um, civil liberties, uh, and unions, because. Another part of AI is hiring practices, is it not? Yeah, definitely. Can AI... you say a little bit on that? Yeah, so AI is being used to filter applicants to identify which ones are, you know, should be given an interview or not. And also it is used to uh, monitor uh, the the work of people are, are doing online. So are people online? Uh, are they productive or not? A wide range of tasks are being monitored and using artificial intelligence to analyze people's behaviors, yeah, and performance, should I say. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I know. I know. I know, like, we've already talked about implications in that realm. So I'm not going to go over them, but my goodness. Christelle, I'm seeing Skynet. I'm seeing Terminator 2. I don't want to dunk into this, but, you know, the government of Canada is using AI already uh, for hiring purposes. Yeah. This is documented, unfortunately. What is the problem with that, Christelle, in terms of the data that's inputted into these systems? Why don't you remind us? So when you're using data from people without their knowledge or consent, there are chances is that, you know, companies developing these tools will be selling that data for purposes that, you know, could range from national security. So selling them to law enforcement agencies all the way to selling uh, to other companies that will develop products to sell to you know those users and other people as well. So 
there's, you know, the the commercial part of it, the privacy part of it, the lack of consent, and a human rights perspective would then come in and and mention how this might affect um, freedom of assembly, freedom of communication, um, you know, freedom from, you know, uh, being persecuted, freedom from being discriminated. Yeah. Unlawful search and seizure, uh, et cetera. Bail reform. Mm-hmm. So that comes into the predictive policing realm where police use these systems to um, predict quote-unquote criminal behavior. Mm-hmm. And guess who are the criminals? Black and brown people. Okay, because... That actually, this is why we need intersectionality in all spaces, because that is closely intersected with class and socioeconomic status, which mm-hmm. also influences your your ability or your access to services such as health care, such as um, prenatal care, such as et cetera. So again, they, they, they're, there's like AI which is the head, and then there's all these octopus legs, I feel, and they're long. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to hiring and promotion, from what I understand, they use historical data to feed these systems. Mm -hmm. And historical data of who has been hired for certain positions are, is heavily biased towards white men because women only came into the women only started getting really like top positions. So say you're looking for a CEO and you're using AI, they're most likely going to spit out a white man, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which just further entrenches those biases that we have already towards women in the workplace towards um, the intersection, people with disabilities in the workplace, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that is completely, um, you know what I was going to say? Orthogonal. Oh my gosh. I, this is where the French speaker in me is like, what does that even mean? It means at 90 degrees. So it's like oh. intersecting. So they're complete opposites. You know what I mean? This oh, is very okay. economics of me. so anyway these things intersect that is what see you all you just learned a new word okay so like i think it's the web it creates the web of discrimination that just gets it's it grows exponentially the more you're exposed to these systems so we just want to say that and the public consultation means that it was not considered. None of this stuff was considered in the bill. And mm-hmm. that's what it means. Mm-hmm. So my understanding is when you want to, you have a mandate, you're supposed to set up this AI uh, regulatory scheme. You go to um, all the people who are left out as well as industry. And you come up with something that's consulted on over and over basically mm-hmm. um, in order to feed into the final provisions of the bill. So that's how it works, people. Okay. 
So the fact we didn't have public consultations means that only industry was consulted. Let's talk about how that influences proper oversight. So we don't have public consultations. We don't have that critique and that kind of distilling of this bill. And so what we don't have proper oversight for artificial intelligence, according to this bill. Can you explain that? Because there's a proposed artificial intelligence and data commissioner that's supposed to oversee all of this. Yeah, so this proposed commissioner who's supposed to oversee the way, you know, the the, the law is enforced and unfortunately is not actually independent. He's actually, not he, they're actually named by the Minister of uh, Innovation, Science and Industry. And they don't actually have the powers to do things independently and proactively. That's actually the minister who's given those powers in the act. So, and we also don't know what type of like staffing the commissioner would have. And so this could probably be be a, a senior public servant named by the minister operating with very few resources to oversee a whole market of artificial intelligence. And Canada is one of those countries with like a very vi- uh, vibrant uh, research and industry uh, working on AI. So like an understaffed senior public servant operating in a capacity that is not independent will not be able to safeguard against the harms that you know we're seeing right now in Canada and globally. Well, here's my problem with this whole bill. Okay, speaking of no independent oversight, it should have independent oversight as an agent of parliament. Now, for those who don't know government, that means it's like the privacy commissioner. It's like the auditor general. They are sort of independent agencies that whose boss is the parliament. And the scrutiny of the head of that, because you have to go through Again, orders of counsel. I'm going to drop that in there, um, which is a mechanism by which uh, regulations are made and uh, people of these agencies like the Human Rights Commission and various agencies are chosen and then they go through a process of orders and counsel. So my problem is that when the minister chooses a senior public servant. The senior public servant is not accountable to the public in the same way a minister would be, and even that is tenuous. That's, you know. So, in other words, you could have a senior public servant who is biased in a way that promotes their own career. And usually that's the go-along to get-along. So they're not independent from, like, there is a clear conflict of interest here. That is my point. You cannot, I, I, it's laughable to me. If we're going to do this commissioner thing, as you said, they're not going to be afforded the powers to enforce AI in an independent manner. And those powers will depend on ministerial discretion. And so who the minister has staffed in the office and who the commissioner has staffed in the office, and how they set up the funding for that office. Like, for example, does it is it 
determined by the minister himself or herself and or themselves. And so like, that's a problem. How, how does this pass the SNP test? The SNP test? It, it doesn't. It stinks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and like, again, like, because we didn't have a public consultation, we haven't had the time as, you know, a community to think about like ways to improve the Canadian public service as a whole to address AI. Because some people are still questioning whether, you know, we need a commissioner specifically for AI and then like empowering existing regulators to to work together. So like, again, that conversation hasn't happened and it is lacking. And I think it's important to have those conversations in order to craft a strategy that is, you know, beneficial to, to, to the Canadian population and also beneficial to the Canadian public service. Because if we're going to use more digital tools, we need to ensure that like all the regulators are working together properly, effectively. That's right. And the, if there's anything about the public service, they don't do IT very well. Yeah. And if it's anything about the public service, they stack systems on top of each other. So it's 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 even more, um, I was going to say jagged, but um, it's more inconsistent. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's a problem too. And honestly, digital literacy in the public service is awful. That's unfortunate. Okay. I'm just saying from um, personal experience, it's really bad. What did you get into this? How did you as a black woman get into the academic pursuit of technology? <laughs> oh, that's a really good question. I would say it was by accident. Like, I did my undergrad in political science. I was really interested in like governance and how, unfortunately, uh, problems of systemic discrimination, you know, exist within our institutions. And so that led me to intern at the House of Commons as part of the parliamentary internship program, which is a nonpartisan uh, internship for recent graduates in Canada. And I had the you know pleasure and honor of working with Matthew Green and uh, the Honorable Greg Fergus. And and I remember during a committee hearing by the ethics committee, facial recognition technology was brought on. And I remember assisting to the to the hearing, feeling shocked and then like sort of angry because the way they were talking about the technology didn't align with my experiences as a black woman in Canada. The assumption that like a tool could be debiased to me just didn't sit right. Like we need to have uh, a contextual understanding of when technologies are being deployed. And so I talked about that with my friends. And then a friend of mine sent me an application um, to a Princeton fellowship around tech policy. And I was like, you know what? Let me just <laughs> apply the joke, but not as a joke. Apply seriously, everyone uh, for jokes. But I applied and I... I was surprised to hear that, you know, they were interested in me. And that led me to a journey of first learning what technology policy is as a field and then learning what artificial intelligence and a variety of other technologies are, how they operate at a very technical level. Then I did work on, you know, um, digital labor platforms such as, you know, DoorDash, Uber and all that. And then Really? Interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah. Because that has uh, that has uh, severely impacted labor. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, and then I, I did work on facial recognition technology and also like touch on broadband infrastructure because internet connectivity is an issue that we need to talk about. But anyway, that's another podcast. It's another <laughs> podcast. And it's also something I've written about, too. Um, rural communities are and it, it, it made me think that it made me realize how uh, divest divestment in rural communities and small towns have just led to awful outcomes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Anyway, carry on. Yeah. Um, and so I also studied uh, political advertising on social media platforms, like how are campaigns done, how are content moderation practices by social media platforms like Facebook or Google or TikTok done, um, and so, like over the span of those two years at Princeton, I you know developed you know a very unique set of skills. So understanding how government operates, and also understanding how technologies operate. And then Bill C twenty seven came out, and then I read the bill, which is I think fifteen pages long, mm-hmm. and shop angry, and then decided to you know put my skills to work. And then this is you know where it has led me now. Yeah. So the ethics committee, as you referenced, uh, did study the use and impact of facial recognition technology. That um, all of that information is on ourcommons.ca. So, what is the state of tech policy in Canada right now? What are we missing? What do we need? What aren't we getting? So I think what we need is conversations publicly. Public consultations, I think, are important in order to ensure that we're including all stripes of society into how we're going to govern these technologies. Because ADA didn't have a public consultation, legislatively right now, the committee study that you're going to be participating in next week is going to be very difficult to actually contribute uh, to so the M- MPs are gonna have to like you know go through vast amounts of testimony and then figure out what types of amendments are they're gonna be able to do. But the issue is that like when the whole bill is flawed, amendments can only do so much to address those issues. And I think we're in a position right now where we need to take a look back, listen to what civil society organizations are saying. And they've been calling for public consultations. They've been calling for, you know, taking a step back, separating ADA from the rest of Bill C-27. And I think it needs to be separated, yeah. yes. Exactly. And even though, you know, we're concerned about, like, the, the fact that, like, these technologies are, you know, advancing quite fast, are we going to be behind? Like, I I think that if you, if you proceed at the f- speed of technology, with bad governance, you're going to just enable more bad harms. Taking our time doesn't mean being slow and then releasing the legislation 10 years from now. Taking our time means, you know, having a four-month, six-month process of public consultation that are thorough and that can result in having such a strong and even, like, internationally renowned piece of legislation. I don't believe in doing things, um, you know, rushed. I, I think 
it's just very harmful in the end. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, these, as you say, these technologies are advancing. The good news is, is that um, the interest rate has slowed them down. <laughs> so what that means is that borrowing is more expensive, which means that the available pool of money to borrow from people are being a little risk or typical investors are being a little risk averse because it's more expensive to for for them to you know invest in these things so and who is like who is really in the tech policy policy space i would say it's a very small community of uh academics in privacy and then also in computer science and then uh in law of course and then um a few uh not a few, I should say, like digital rights advocacy groups and then some civil society groups and then unions as well. And then industry mm -hmm. have, you know, lobbyists involved. Yeah. OK, so basically we're talking about all corners of society. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Great. Yay. On that note, I hope you feel as dystopian as I do. <laughs> You're welcome. Anyway. Thank you, Christelle, for coming. By the way, the fact that you do like political, you study political digital campaigns. Yeah. You have to come back and talk about that. Oh, there's a lot of tea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. You're coming back. Thank you for spending your time with us. Um, where can people find you? Uh, people can find me on uh, Blue Sky on Twitter and then also on my website, cristaltesono.com. Uh, yeah, don't be shy. Send me an email. Uh, yeah. Okay. So until next time, Christelle, we'll check you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much, Erica.